C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. If it's not true, don't even waste your time. Right? If it is true, then it has the utmost importance. What it is not is moderately important, which is a challenging statement for us because I think for most of us, even who would claim to be Christians or who are interested in Christianity, would say it's moderately important. Right? So how do you know if it's true then? Well, I suggest to you, you have to look at the resurrection. You have to look at the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So the resurrection is of critical importance. So what we're doing here as we gather together in this room, as you took time out of your Sunday, your day off, right, to gather in this room at four o'clock is critically important because we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he literally died and then literally came back to life and never died again. And so there's people all over the world that are celebrating that on this day. People from all over the world, people that you will never meet, people who speak different languages than you, have different backgrounds than you do, celebrating this. We've celebrated this for century after century. As Christians, we gather in this room on Sundays, and we remember this hope every single week. As you open your Bibles throughout the week, we're being pointed to this reality once again. And so I think that what's pretty natural to happen over time is that you and I can become so familiar with the resurrection story that it kind of becomes this background noise that we don't remember very acutely. And then we begin to live these lives that we claim to be Christians, yet we live divorced from the reality of it. It's like this. When, I, um, when we lived in Corvallis, we lived in this house that we kind of became a family in. We lived in this cul-de-sac. We had amazing neighbors. It wasn't a big, amazing house, but it was our house, right? We became a family in this house. We had this really great backyard. It was, it was big. You could play like a wiffle ball game in it, you know. There was these huge trees and uh, this big fence. And what you couldn't see behind that fence was train tracks. And so when we were looking at this house, we were wondering why the value was kind of depreciated on it a little bit. And we learned, you know, people kind of got steered away because of the train tracks a little bit. And so we're like, that's not a big deal. But then one day we were there and the train came by, right? And you could hear it coming from quite a distance out. It would get louder and louder and louder. The guy would toot his little horn thing or whatever you call it, right? And then all of a sudden it would just appear. And in that moment, you're like, whoa. I mean, I wish you could all see it right now. It was just completely jarring, right? It kind of messed with you a little bit. Like that is, that's very close, you know, it would shake the house a little bit, and it was just completely unavoidable in every sense of the word, right? And so for a long time, we would be very acutely aware of this thing passing by our house morning, afternoon, and night. Morning, afternoon, and night. Every single time, you're like, here comes the train. Here comes the train. After a while, I didn't even notice it anymore. Never noticed it, right? There would even be times where I would say to my wife, you know, Elizabeth, I would say, you know, has the train even come by this week? Right? I'm like, are they not doing trains anymore? You know, like, I just wonder if they're out of business or something, you know? And, um, but then somebody would come over to our house and visit, and the train would come by, and they go, whoa, right? Because they're not used to it. And all of a sudden, because there's a new person there, and they're seeing the train for the first time, you know, they're like, that's a little, you know, if that thing gets derailed, and you're like, please don't make me think about that stuff, right? You know? But you, 
it would take somebody new to come along to remind me how crazy this is, how, how massive this thing and intense this is. And I think the resurrection is a lot like that train that ran behind my house. When you first hear it, right, when you first saw it with the eyes of faith, you were kind of shaken by it. You're filled with the wonder, like, what is possible in this world? You know, what is true about life, really? But as the familiarity sets in, we forget its reality, and it kind of becomes this background noise to us. So how do you know if the resurrection has become background noise? Well, it's, you begin to live without hope while claiming that you believe it's true. So if someone were to ask your closest friend or family tonight about you, if someone were to interview you and say, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? Are they a hopeful person? Are they hopeful about the future? What would they say? See, you can only be hopeful in this world, that's for sure, if you have a hope that's bigger than this world. And that's what Luke offers us. Let me tell you, it didn't start that way because it started with Saturday. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to see Saturday, which is the first part of our passage. And we see the hope that was lost in people's minds. But I want to ask this question, what do you do when God is silent? Because that's what we see here on Saturday. It's complete silence. But then we have Sunday. Right? We see this hope that's returned. And we're going to ask the question, really, that the um, angels rhetorically ask, do you seek the living among the dead? Do you seek the living among the dead? So let's look first here at Saturday. Let's look at Saturday. Look at verse 50 with me. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. The council that it's referring to is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the group of people that put Jesus on trial and said, this man is guilty. They're the group that kind of pushed them into the Roman hands to eventually have Jesus crucified. So he was a member of that council, but he was a good and righteous man. And Luke wants you to know he had not consented to their decision and action to deliver Jesus or to be crucified. So there's people on the Sanhedrin that don't see Jesus all the same way. And what does it say about him? He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So we have this guy Joseph of Arimathea. He's a wealthy man. We know that because he's on the Sanhedrin. And he's an important man. We know that because he has access to just go ask Pilate for favors. Right? I mean, you don't just get to go and talk to, like, the president of the, whatever you want to do, right? You have to have certain access and status. So this man is an important man. He can just go to Pilate and say, I want the body of Jesus. But notice why he wants the body of Jesus. It's really interesting. What does, he say, what does it say about Joseph? It says he's a man looking for the kingdom of God. This kind of puts him into the same camp of the people you saw in Luke chapter 2. If you think all the way back to Christmas of 2019, right, when we were in Luke chapter 2. Right, people like Simeon, who's waiting for the consolation of Israel. People like Anna, who's 84 years old and never leaving the temple, worshiping God as a devout woman. Right? What does it say about her? She's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's Joseph 
looking for the kingdom of God. And so what does he do? I love this. He's looking for the kingdom, so he says, can I have the body of Jesus? The kingdom is somehow tied up to the body of Jesus for Joseph. Right? So he takes it down, implying from the cross, he wraps it in linen shroud and lays him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had been yet laid. Right? This keeps coming up. This is like a, a holiness signal language here. Like when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the colt, it says a colt on which no one had ever sat. Here's a tomb that no one had been laid in. No dead bodies had laid in this tomb before. Right? So here we are. We know from other accounts that, that this work that he's doing here to kind of prepare the body of Jesus for burial would need to take place really quickly because the Sabbath is upon them, which would start in the evening. We know from other accounts that he has the help from a man named Nicodemus, who there's a famous recording of Jesus' interaction with him in John 3. We know that from John's account that Nicodemus was a part of this with Joseph, helping prepare the body. They would bring this mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of it. And they would wrap Jesus' body with these spices. They would take the strips of linen and line them with him. This was Jewish custom. They wound the linen bandages around Jesus' bruised and bloody and broken body. And they would sprinkle these powdered spices on it. They would use a separate cloth for his head, so the cloth would wrap around his head, but it would leave his face visible, exposed. And they would wrap his body, but leave the neck exposed. In a real way, can you picture him lying there? I mean, picture him. We then see it's nearly Friday evening, right? They're trying to hurry this up. Verse 55, what does it say? There's women who are observing Joseph's swift actions to complete this task. They're watching from a distance. This is the same group of women we might imagine that Luke talks about in verse 26 that are following Jesus and crying, and Jesus turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem. This could be the same people, right, who he's talking about in verse 49. It says, and all his acquaintances, right when he's crucified, the, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. They've watched him carry the cross. They've watched him die on the cross, and now they're watching where the body's going to be laid. Hey, there it is. There's the tomb. There's the body. I can see it now. They're preparing these spices and ointments. They, these would reduce the stench and help with the decomposition. So Jesus, guys, is receiving normal treatment for a beloved Jewish man. And what I want you to know here is that Jesus really died. He really died. He didn't just lose consciousness no, we know from other accounts in the Gospels that one soldier even pierced Jesus' side so blood and water flowed out of it. He really died. He really tasted death. He really experienced death. He has gone through what all of us will have to go through some point, right? Breathing our last. And Luke wants you to know these people that are doing this, they are not Jewish rebels. Okay, these aren't people that have become disenchanted with their Jewish faith like they were Jewish, and then because they killed Jesus who they had their hope in, they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of leaving my Jewish faith behind. You know, people today would say, I'm deconstructing my Jewish faith or something like that. That's not what we're to see here. No, they're still practicing it devoutly. But there is no indication that they expect a resurrection. Now, I think it's really easy to push past this text. It's, it's straightforward, though, and it offers us 
historical help in accounting for Jesus' death, but it also reminds us that there are many moments in our lives, there are many days where God seems silent, right? I mean, there's not much the disciples have going on here. I mean, they've just watched Jesus, the one that they've followed for years, the one that they've given everything in order to do that. They've just watched him crucified and died and buried, and now the evening is upon them, and they're going to go to sleep, and they're going to wake up the next morning, and it's going to be crickets, right? No words, no miracles, no activity. They're just going to have to sit there in their sorrow and wait. And it's important to see that God does not rush them through the heartache. He doesn't look at them in this moment and go, you know what, I feel bad, so hey, let's just get up on Saturday, right? Let's just bring it back, you know? No, they're sitting in the silence. They're sitting in the grief process. Their hopes are gone. They're completely dashed, and they just had to sit in it. Have you ever been there? I mean, do you ever find yourself in a certain season feeling like God is silent? Right? And you're just left in the grief of it. You're left in the disorientation, right? The silence can even be so loud, right? If you've ever been around a lot of noise and you finally enter into the silence, you have that ringing in your ears, right? The silence is almost deafening, right? The contrast of it as you adjust from the noise. I mean, maybe you've had some hope built up into something, and you thought maybe this is going to be the thing and it didn't go the way that you wanted or it was taken away from you. I mean, it could be as simple as a vacation, right? That you've really just put a lot of money towards, you've really put a lot of hope in and it came and it just was not satisfying in any way. I mean, I know for me and my family in January 2019, we'll live on an infinity, our gift to our kids for Christmas was a trip to Disneyland. We're like, like all Oregonians, right? We're like, let's get out of this Southern California or this you know, raining Pacific Northwest and let's get some sun, right? Let's enjoy a theme park in January or something. And we go and no joke, it dumped rain day after day the entire time we were there. We were leaving midway through the day to throw our clothing in the dryer, right, at the hotel. It was miserable. And then even as we're driving back home, just everything was closed, not everything was open. We're driving to the airport, we're stuck in traffic, it's pouring down rain. And one by one, I kid you not, our kids start throwing up in our Uber, just one after the other. They all did. They all joined in the fun, right? And me and my wife are just sitting there going like, could this get any worse, right? I mean, we put so much hope in this vacation as being this respite, this reprieve, and it just like fallen apart, smashing to smithereens, right? It was an expensive Uber bill, I tell you that, okay? But maybe that's not for you. Maybe you're like, vacation's too low bar for me. But, but you had hope in somebody maybe that you saw prospect of a marriage with and it just didn't work out right? The hope's taken away. Or, or you actually did get married, and you thought that was going to solve it, and that has not gone well. Things have fallen apart. Maybe someone's betrayed you. They've cheated on you. It just hasn't gone the way that you hoped it would. Or maybe you're like so just done with your job, and you're like, I think this one will be the job, and you get into it, and after a couple months, you're like, you know what? I'm back at square one again. Or you had the terrible diagnosis, or someone in your family and you got the hope of this treatment will work, and it looked like it was going to work, and now it's not working. 
right? Maybe you finally had everything that you wanted to, or you at least see the puzzle pieces and how they could fall into place, and you go, I'm finally going to have this life that I've been, been hoping for. It's coming together, and then it gets dashed, right? Our hopes are gone, and we're left there in the silence. They could be all good things, and then we look at God, and we go, God, where are you? What do you do when God is silent? Well, from our text, what do these people do? They look for the kingdom. They look for the kingdom. They basically cling to what they know God has said. The last thing God has said, they cling to it. When hope is lost, they don't start looking for another kingdom. They press on. They observe the Sabbath. Why? Because God said they needed to rest, right? They are to remember how God has saved them in the past from their slavery in Egypt. And so they practice the Sabbath. And so the question then is, what do you do when God is silent, when hope seems lost? I encourage you to look for the kingdom. You have to have a bigger hope than this world, don't you? Well, that's Saturday. But then we go to Sunday. Verse 1, chapter 24, On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So here's Luke's account of the resurrection. It's simple. It's it's powerful, though, because Remember, Luke is a medical professional, right? And so he's someone who's traveled with believers. Some might even think that he was a part of maybe the original 70 that went sent, got sent out or something like that. But he's at least traveled with Paul and all these other believers that witnessed all these things happening. And so his point that he wrote at the beginning of this gospel account to Theophilus was that he would have an orderly account about the things concerning Jesus. He gives us details like any good doctor would draw out. But they're not for this poetic manipulation. They're not for exaggerated storytelling purposes. He gives them for evidence. And so what he gives us here is these devoted followers of Jesus, these women, they make their way to the tomb on Sunday morning. So again, they're going to care for this body and they're going to apply these spices that they've been kind of getting together. Can you see them, right? They're walking to the tomb with heavy hearts because their king has died. And then they arrive at the tomb, and they find some things they didn't expect, and they find some things that they did expect. Right? They, they expected to find a sealed tomb, but the stone is rolled away, right? which, how does that happen? Right? I mean, I, a lot of people have accounted for how these stones would be one to two tons at times, you know? I mean, I don't even know what they're thinking, what they're going to do when they get there. I mean, maybe someone else is going to roll. I don't know, but they get there, and the stone is rolled away. They also expect to walk in then and see a body, right? That's why they're there. They've been watching from the night before. There's the tomb. 
There's the body. That's what they're expecting. The body is gone. Right? Who had taken it away? Who has taken the body? Well, some people have argued, you know, it's, it's the disciples, right? They wanted to create this sort of drama. They wanted to start a new religion. They wanted to gain power or something like that. So they stole the body and made up this whole, like, fable that Jesus rose from the dead, which really doesn't make any sense logically, right? Because eventually all these disciples are going to have to be killed and beaten and bruised and many of them crucified for following Jesus. So if that's you, if you're getting beat up for following something that you've made up, you're eventually going to break, right? So people go, it's not the disciples that took the body. Some people might have said, well, it's the priests and it's the Roman officials that took the body. But that doesn't make sense either because if you see this new movement of people following Jesus as their king, why don't you just deliver the body and go, hey guys, here's the body, right? Jesus isn't isn't really alive. We still have it. So they don't have the body. So where's the body? In verse 4, we see the announcement of where the body is. Right? We see these two men that are wearing dazzling apparel, which doesn't mean they shopped at Nordstrom or something. It means that they're angels, basically. Right? They were frightened and humbled, the women were, when they saw this. Just like you would be. If you were in a tomb, you'd probably be frightened in general. But if you were in a tomb and you saw two angels appear, you would probably be frightened as well. But they bow, right? And then what happens? These angels speak. So remember, God has been silent. He's been silent, but now he's speaking through his messengers. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They ask, why are you looking for the one who is alive in a place where there's only dead people? Do you know living people don't hang out in tombs, right? It's not a popular place. That's why if you drive by a graveyard, like maybe the one on the backside of uh, Main City Park or something like that, you know, or by West Gresham Elementary, You don't walk by and just see people out there playing football or grilling out or, you know, people don't hang out there. You don't lose someone and go, hey, where's mom or where's my friend and go, let's check the graveyard, right? You don't think that about, because living people don't hang out in the graveyards, do they? Right? That's not what you see. But really, this question is not just a um, sarcastic question. It's a counseling question, right? It's a rhetorical question. They're not looking for information. They're actually, in a glorious way, rebuking these women, but it's a loving rebuke because it's trying to redirect them. It's trying to heal them. They're saying Jesus is not to be thought of as dead. Therefore, don't seek him among the dead. Don't think of him that way. Right? What do they say? The verse 7, while he was still in Galilee, do you remember what he said? The Son of Man must be delivered. This word must is now a controlling word in the sentence. You could read it like this, that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, and he must be crucified, and on the third day he must rise. That's what it's saying. So it's not saying he did get crucified, he did die. No, he must die. This has been the plan. He's been telling you about this all along. They go, do you remember? Verse 8, and they remembered. They remembered Jesus' words. Let me ask you this, right? What kind of world are we living in? If a dead person comes back to life, like what kind of world is this? I mean, have you thought about that? Like I know, again, this is like a background noise kind of story for many of you now, but what kind of world is this? 
If you go expecting to see a dead body, oh, he told you, he must rise. Right, he's living. Why are you here? Right, why are you looking here? Look, look elsewhere if you're going to find Jesus. What kind of world is this? And what would you begin to think about that person? Right? I mean, we have witnesses to all of this. And it's kind of remarkable, the witnesses that God chose. Right? Because he reveals himself first to these women. What women? Verse 10, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women. Who knows how many there were, right? Maybe they ran in a big gang. I don't know. But maybe a lot of them. All these women, first eyewitnesses. And they go and they tell about it. Right? This is what God chose to do. And Luke's picked up on it. Right? This is a counterintuitive force to it because a women's testimony in this day and age was just completely thrown out. So if you were on trial for something and the only evidence against you was women or even 50 women were to stand up and say, yes, I saw this person do that, it would just be thrown out. Right? It wasn't to be trusted. I know it's horrible, right? But it's true. If women came with a story like this, or any for that matter, it would be immediately met with suspicion. And this is another great proof of why the resurrection account is credible and not made up. Because if you're in the first century and you're trying to create a new religion or a new movement to try to gain power in some way or to get people to follow Jesus, the people you would choose to be your eyewitnesses are not women. No one would do it. No one would see it as credible. I love how Daryl Bach says this. He says, the resurrection was not created by the church. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. Right? Because if, if all these people made this up to trick the world, they should have thought through things a little bit better. Right? And so if, if you feel skeptical here about this, because it is like what kind of thing like this ever happens on a given day, right? You're not alone. Because these women go and tell, and they tell Jesus' inner circle, who's heard all of his teaching, and what's their response? It's skepticism. I look in verse 11. These words seem to them an idle tale. It's, it means nonsense. It's oftentimes used as a medical word, which go figure, right? Luke's saying it, meaning like you're out of your mind, right? And they did not believe them. Right, that's unbelievable to them. The first skeptics to the resurrection were the disciples. Right? Just think about it. And this is an important feature in Luke's gospel. The disciples' attitude is skepticism, just like our attitudes can be naturally, even all these years later. The attitude they have is the same attitude that we have, right? Show me. Prove it. I'll believe it when I see it. G.K. Chesterton said the special mark of the modern world is not that it is skeptical but that it is dogmatic without knowing it, right? We all can give this facade that we're skeptical, but really our skepticism is just guarded by this dogmatic sort of understanding about how we see the world to be, that we don't want to believe, actually. So I'm going to be skeptical about it, right? Because I have something else that I'm holding on to here. That's what he's saying. But a true skeptic is someone who would actually consider this and begin to open themselves up to the possibility of it, like Peter. Look in verse 12. You see Peter, right? The denier. The one who his last interaction with Jesus is denying him, hearing the rooster crow, and then Jesus looking at him across the courtyard, and him going off and weeping. Peter, 
rose and ran. He rose and ran. I mean, maybe he's learned, right? Maybe he's learned that what Jesus says he's going to do, he actually does. Like when Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, and Peter's like, no, I'm not, right? You know what I'm going to do instead? I'm going to go go with you to death. I'm going to go as far as you want me to go, right? And then the rooster crowed. He sees Jesus. He weeps and cries and goes either way. Maybe he's actually learned that when Jesus says he's going to do something or something is going to happen, it actually happens. So when Jesus said he must die and he must rise, maybe it's true. So he runs to the tomb, he stoops in, he looks, and then he's left marveling, right? That's what it says. He's marveling at what has happened. It's the sense of wonder. All right, guys, this is the, 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 this is the word that has the first steps of faith attached to it. You begin to open yourself up finally to the possibilities like, could this be true? It's the first step of faith. Right, this marveling isn't a word that means like, whoa, this is crazy. That's not what the word marveling means right? Marveling is a sense where Peter has now opened himself up to faith in God that what has just been told to him might actually be true. Something has happened and God seems to be in it. I sat here this week looking at this text over and over wondering, man, when is the last time I just marveled at God? See, in a, in a noisy world that we live in, where we, myself included, when, when we have the silence, we try to fill it with noise. In a noisy world that we live in, we don't like the silence, so we try to distract ourselves from it. But in a world that's noisy like ours, it robs us of wonder. Because it's often only in the silence that you can begin to wonder, right? So let's wonder. But as we wonder, let's ask the really important question. If Jesus did rise from the dead and he never died again, what ways does that become the train background noise as we grow disconnected from its reality? In other words, in what ways do you treat Jesus as if he were still dead today while claiming to be a Christian? Right, we can gather a couple quick things from this. Number one, I think this becomes background noise to us when our faith is merely a set of knowledge and behaviors to be practiced. If that's what we think Christianity is, if that's why we think Jesus died and was risen, was so that we could have a knowledge and a certain behavior to model, then we're missing it. I mean, just think of someone who you love that's no longer with you, but they mean a lot to you. Is there anybody that comes to your mind? Don't overthink it. Just somebody. You admired them. You loved them. How do you relate to them now? Do you ever go to their grave? Do you ever do that? And what do you do when you go to their grave? You probably don't bring spices and stuff like that that you've prepared, but you probably bring flowers maybe. Right, you put those flowers down and you think about them. You think about what they were like. Maybe you shed a tear. It could be inspiring. It could be moving. Right, you remember them for who they were, but it's, it's actually not that personal, right, in a way that you relate to them. You're not talking to them. I mean, maybe you're talking to them, but you're not expecting them to talk back to you, right? You're not, you're not really dealing with them as people. You're dealing with them as a memory, right? 
I mean, that's how the women were trying to worship Jesus, right? He's a memory. There's the body, yes, but he's a memory. And the angels say, he's not here. You can't relate to him that way. You can't do that this way, right? So here's what I want you to consider. Are you sure that you're not doing that with Jesus? Are you sure? Like when you pray, in some sense, do you feel like you're standing at a grave? You're talking. You're thinking about some things. But, I mean, it's not personal. Do you sense his presence? Do you know that he is attentive to you? I mean, I mean, look, when they say you're not looking in the right place, they're, they're saying go look in the right place. That's what, they're, that's what they're saying. They're saying go look, right? See, Easter goes beyond. It pushes you beyond just agreeing with God about certain things. Easter pushes you beyond knowing facts about Christianity. See, Christianity is more than just saying, hey, I got these stories, I got these lessons, I got these teachings, I got these rules, right? And I'm good, right? I, I like the teachings of Jesus. I like following them. He's got some really important things to say, and if I didn't have that, my life would be a bigger mess than it is, right? That's not Christianity. Easter doesn't say, just hold on to the teachings. Do that, please. Easter is saying, though, that Jesus is the living reality of the world and of your life and faith. Your faith is useless if it's not true. Right? We don't relate to God as a memory, but as a reality. And so if we treat Jesus as if he were dead, if, that, if that's one way that we do that, then listen to the angels say, remember, do you remember? I must rise. I must rise. See, Christianity is not conforming us to some kind of ideal. It's transformation through relating to the living Lord, the one who is alive today. So that's, that's the first way that we can often relate to Jesus as if he were still dead. But secondly, when we live without hope, when we begin to live without hope, see, it's very possible just like these women and like the disciples to be around Jesus and just not get it. But what do the angels say? They don't say, hey, ladies, you need some new knowledge here. You need some new insight, Right? Let me tell you about it. You got your notes. Ready? No. They say, ladies, the reason you're all burdened down with sorrow right now is because you haven't understood the gospel. Right? You thought Jesus died and he's now maybe at most like an example to emulate. Look at the way he suffered. I need to suffer in the same way. He was a great man. No, Jesus didn't die as a mere example. He died as a substitute. He didn't die as your example only. He died as your Savior, and now he lives. And the Bible says he lives as a first fruits of the new creation. Right? That now anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, the new heavens and new earth is going to be populated with people who have done that. Right? He's the first fruit of that new crop of people. He died as your Savior, but now he lives as your living Lord. That's the reason why the huge change actually came in people's lives. I mean, you could be here today and you might even say to yourself, yeah, I, I believe in the miracle of resurrection, like anything's possible, right? What am I to say, right? Just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not true. You could be that kind of person. But see, it, it's, it's not just like believing in the miracle itself as if God did a miracle. 
And, and he did, you can almost think of it as like a, the way a movie does a CGI effect. And you go, wow, that's cool, right? In a generic way, like God is real, right? Look at that. He rose from the dead. Isn't it great? No, it's not some general way that God's showing you something. Do you know that Jesus had to die? Do you know that he had to rise? Do you see what this means for you? You have a hope that's bigger than this world. Absolutely, unequivocally. This is what this is showing you. And so now, if the resurrection is true, then the worst thing that can happen in your life is never the last thing. Whatever in your mind is like the new worst-case scenario, it's not the last thing. Because we all had these worst-case scenarios in our mind. This could happen. That would be the most devastating thing. But then behind that is always this understanding that even if the worst-case scenario is that you die, behind that is that you still have to face God. So that's really the worst thing. But now Jesus has paid for your sin and risen from the dead. So even when the worst thing happens, beneath that of the floorboard of your life, the thing that you stand on is that it's not the worst thing. It's not the worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario of my life now is that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what I'm standing on. And this changes everything. It moves us from people who maybe when our hopes are dashed, we don't just move and default to self-pity. But our default attitude is to stand again upon the resurrection as our reality. This is how this changes our hopes. I mean, I can think of when I was a kid and something didn't go my way. I could just get so pouty about it, right? Maybe I'm the only one. But then my parents maybe would come along and say, man, look at you, just so focused on that one thing. Do you remember that you have a roof over your head and food on the table and you got to do that trip last year? You can just list all the things and what they're doing is saying you're just focused on the one thing. Right? The hope was dashed, but look at all this other stuff that you have. Right? It changes the worst case scenario for you. You face your dashed hopes and dreams very differently. It's like if you were on a plane and the pilot came over and announced, hey, we're all going to crash, right? Um, sorry, it's kind of scary, but hey, we all have parachutes and you're going to be fine. And so you were like, I don't know, 20th in line. You've seen all these people jump out. They're doing fine. Okay, you're like, okay, I'm not going to die. This is going to work out. And the stewardess comes along and she's dishing out coffee for some reason, wanting to give everybody a little caffeine before, and she spills an entire pot of coffee on you, Right? How are you going to feel in that moment? I know that's probably never going to happen to you, but let's just say it did, right? How are you going to feel? Are you going to be like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing, like you ruined my outfit and, you know, all this kind of stuff. No, you're going to view that situation very differently. Why? Because the worst case scenario was that you were just about to die and now you're going to live. So I face these other realities very differently, don't we? Guys, we are Easter people living in a silent Saturday world. There is real disappointment. There is real grief. There is real heartache. There is real pain. And we wish God would just rush us through to the good stuff. But he's there in the silence. Even when he's silent, we know he's attentive to our prayers because he's promised us that. We don't pray and stand at a gravestone just trying to keep his memory alive in our minds. He is alive. 
and he has accomplished your salvation, and he has secured your future hope. Jesus is risen. There is a new world coming. Jesus is risen. It really is finished, as Jesus uttered from the cross, if you were with us on Good Friday. How do you know Jesus fully atoned for your sin? He rose from the dead. God accepted that. He is risen. It really is finished. He is risen. I know where I'm going. He is risen. You don't worship a dead God. He's alive. He is risen. You have a hope that this world cannot steal from you. Don't let the resurrection be background noise. Wonder at it once again. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's pray together as we go into our time of response and singing and then baptisms on this Easter service. Lord, I know our minds can and our hearts can be weighed down with our hopes being dashed in this world and things not going the way we would want or whatever it might have. And that can just settle in on us, Lord. And so I pray that your gospel message would would just sweep across our heavy hearts and minds and clear the air, the smog, the cobwebs, whatever, Lord, is just hanging over us and cause us to once again see the liberation and the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. God, would you be so gracious to us and not let this story grow old. Help us to wonder again at the miracle of your resurrection to savor your finished work for us and to save to savor your victory, Lord. Help us to live in light of it, we pray. Help us to never forget what you've said, even in the silence. How would you speak to us now and warm our hearts with great affection for Jesus, we pray. Amen.